Support for industry focus comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, March 31st, and we're talking analyst coverage and SNAP. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com senior tech specialist, Evan New. Evan, what's up? I'm going well. Going well. Just drinking my coffee. Yeah, I'm happy to get you before you have uh, the big outing with the kids to the aquarium, right? That's right. That's right. Going later today to have a little family day. Yeah, it's the life of a contractor right there. (laughs) (laughs) So, Evan, uh, shares of Snap enjoyed a nice little bump earlier this week thanks to some fresh analyst coverage, which seemed to give the stock a pretty rosy outlook. For today's show, I figure we'll talk a little bit about the sell-side analyst and, and the life of the sell-side analyst, the people that are putting out some of these research notes, and just kind of run through the recent research we've seen and, and, and kind of how we feel about it and how it jives with uh, you know some of the stuff we've read and just kind of our own opinions. Um, before we get too far into the discussion, though, I think there are probably some listeners out there that aren't super familiar with the buy-side, sell-side dynamics of the investment industry. You want to kind of run through that first? Sure, sure. I mean, basically, the the buy side are, are people or analysts that are actually working for funds or that are actually buying the stocks. So they, you know, they're the ones that are actively have you know money into whatever they're picking. Whereas the sell side analysts are the guys that you see on TV, the research notes that you hear put out, um, and, and those, those analysts they work at the you know banks or investment firms. And you know all they do is they do the research and they try to sell that research to the buy side. Uh, the sell side usually cannot own any of the stocks that they research for objectivity purposes. And a lot of the times, what they try to do is they try to get the buy side to come trade on the at their brokerage, and then the sell side analysts get a small um, percentage of the commissions that those clients pay. And often they they will pay kind of inflated commissions on purpose <laughs> through a, an arrangement called soft dollars, which kind of, sh- from the funds perspective, kind of shifts the cost from the management side to the investors. It's kind of a shady thing that's been, that's just always been there, but it's just the way it works. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we see these notes coming out or when we see new price targets, these are all coming from the sell side analysts. And, and this is them publishing research. And, and really, it's it's kind of a client book building method for them, right? And it's a, it's a way to kind of build buzz about companies that they're following and, and kind of put out their thoughts on them. Exactly. It's, it's more or less just trying to get exposure, marketing pitch, you know, just to kind of say, hey, you know, look, we have this really good research and try to attract more uh, clients to, to buy that research. Whereas a buy side analyst, if the buy side analyst does their own research and does like, let's say they do a super deep dive and they have some information that they think is super valuable, obviously they're just not going to advertise it. They're just going to go act on it and try to make money on it. And if they have better information than the rest of the market, um, I mean, that's, that's the goal, obviously. But uh, yeah, so they're not going to be the ones that are out there talking up uh, too much. But, you know, I mean, of course, obviously, sometimes you see people on TV that are like, so and so capital management. So you know they do like to uh, go out there and be seen in the media. But a lot, most of the time, when you hear about price targets, ratings, underweight, overweight, buy hold, whatever, that's that's all sell side. So by my count, looking at Snap, we've got six buy ratings, two hold ratings, and one sell rating from analysts so far. Uh, a lot of price targets seem to be in the high twenties and low thirties 
from uh, from some of the underwriting banks <laughs> from the IPO. It's kind of funny how that works out, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's so the the underwriters have a longer quiet period, so that's why we're now seeing all of the you know, the quiet period just went up. So now the all the underwriters can start putting out their own ratings, or some of the other ratings we've seen before were from you know, other other firms. So if you look at the the, the IPO, there were seven underwriters. Uh, one is boutique and doesn't really issue ratings. It's Allen and Company. Uh, one hasn't issued a, a rating yet. Um, uh, as of right now, they haven't issued one, that's, which is Barclays. So, out of the five remaining underwriters, there are four buys and one hold. So, so like, you know, of course, it looks a little like like they're biased because they underwrote this giant deal. Uh, and, but to be fair, you know, there are some other more objective ratings that have come out in the past few days. Also, there are buy ratings like Cohen, City, Jeffries, RBC, um, and a couple to. Uh, some others last week or so. So it's not like you have to be an underwriter to like the stock. There are certainly other people that have nothing to do with the deal that are out there being bullish. But you know, as far as underwriters are concerned, it's it's a little it looks a little biased. But I mean, there's supposed to be this Chinese wall between investment banking and research. But I'm sure that the analysts are very well aware that if the other side of the business has this huge deal. It doesn't really look good if you go out and start bashing it because they're probably not going to win those deals in the future. <laughs> yeah, I think I think before we get too far into this conversation, it's good to be clear. You know, there are regulations in place to prevent the investment banking arm of a firm from reaching into research analyst coverage. Uh, like you said, there's the wall between the business, and usually the folks can't even be in the same room with each other without a chaperone or something like that. Um, but you know, there there are some incentives at play, uh, and and really. You can't be surprised by this because, at the end of the day, the underwriting banks just spent months talking about how great Snap is to all of their clients, all these institutional investors, all these high net worth individuals. So it's really not all that surprising for an analyst from that firm to kind of feel the same way about it, right? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, they should be able to objectively if they really felt that way, but the optics would be really hard to to kind of. Justify because yeah, like like you mentioned, they, they've been talking this thing up, and I mean the underwriters make all sorts of money on these deals. Not 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 only in terms of the the fees that they collect, but you know in terms of once the trading starts and like they have their big clients. And you know the whole goal of these on these IPOs is to kind of put together engineer like a, a nice pop on the first day, which is most people say, oh that that IPO went great if you get like a big jump, which you know Snap did on the first day, it went up like forty some odd percent. On the first day of trading, relative to the offering price, so I mean they they have a lot of incentives to make the deal look good, and then of course if they come and this once the the quiet period is over, if their analyst comes out and starts bashing the company, it's just it kind of it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean it's not to say like it's impossible. I'm sure there are cases that has happened, and I don't have any off the top of my head, but I mean I think I think you'd have to be super, like really naive to think that these Chinese walls work exactly as they're intended to all the time. <laughs> yeah, and and while it is tempting to um to kind of drop conspiracy theories with this type of stuff, um I do think it's it's kind of worth remembering that like I said, these banks spent a ton of time telling institutions and high net worth individuals what a good company Snap is and really selling Snap. So, 
losing that business and tarnishing the relationship with those institutions or those high net worth individuals that they spent so much time kind of bringing in with these research notes um, would be almost a bigger loss for an investment bank or, or from a, re- uh, a research firm or investment management company. So that's kind of something that plays into this too. Um, just kind of as an aside, I think that the quiet period and the regulations are set up in a way that kind of reinforces all of this. So, you know, we talked about uh, how they can't put out any notes on this, but that's only for 25 days after the issuance. And to go back to this, I mean, they just talked about how excited they are about the company on their roadshow. Nothing's going to change. There aren't any new financials out. So, I think one way they could improve these regulations is maybe by forcing analysts to wait until the company has reported a quarter of financials first, because that would actually give them the chance to say something new. And then if they wanted to put out bearish coverage, they'd always have you know, the ability to kind of hide behind the fact that, you know, in the most recent quarter, they saw something they didn't like, you know, it kind of gives them an out. Right. It could give them a little bit more justification. But I think that the challenge there is that pe- people, you know, earning schedules are so tricky to, and they can be so variable and specific by company that, you know, so I think the regulations are kind of, you know, meant to place for, you know, I guess they felt that 25 days is, a good enough period of time or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess the, the takeaway here is like you should never expect to see a research analyst come out and bash a company uh, that you know his firm had also or her firm had also underwritten the IPO for. It's just probably not going to happen uh, all that often. Um, but we're going to get into the uh, the specific things that we saw from these research notes and, and whether we agree or disagree with them in the second half of the show. Before we get over to that, though, just wanted to thank Rocket Mortgage for its support of Industry Focus. Um, when it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone that you can trust who has your best interests in mind. With Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial information to get a mortgage approval in minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. So, listeners, if you're looking for a home loan, skip the bank, skip the waiting line, and go completely online at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting the podcast. So, Evan, we've both been bearish on Snap, and I thought since there was a lot of optimistic notes coming out about the company, it might be good for us to look at it, kind of see what the other side of the coin is, and whether we agree or disagree with any of the points that they're making. Yep. Yeah, nope. uh, one, one of the first things that I kind of clued in on here was a quote in the research note from Heath Terry of Goldman Sachs, and he says, Snap is a venture stage investment in the public markets, something unseen in recent years where nearly all internet companies waited until later stages of growth and profitability to go public. While this clearly carries a higher risk profile, we believe it also comes with a higher reward potential. Um, this is something I agree with. I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, I think it does. It's kind of an apt description, but I don't, I mean, I, I agree that I don't think it's really necessarily a good thing. <laughs> I mean, there there's also a reason why most companies go public later in the stage, which is also because, you know, trying to assess a venture stage investment is extremely complicated and hard, and it's just crazy risky. And I don't think it's really a good necessarily a good thing for public investors who don't have that kind of experience to to analyze companies from at that stage, it's just a lot trickier to 
to value and to invest in, which is why this that stage is usually done in the private markets. And to, to you know to open it up to to public investors and say, hey, you have a chance to to invest at kind of an earlier stage than than most companies would do this is not. I mean, yeah, I agree that there's probably a higher risk that translates to higher reward, but I think investors have this kind of natural tendency when they, whenever they hear that phrase like, oh, higher risk, higher reward, they don't focus on the higher risk part. They focus on the higher reward part. They like, just oh, see the dollar signs, right? Right. But I mean, you got to really put equal weight into both sides of that equation because I think the risks here are extremely high. And yeah, it's true that they might turn into higher reward, but you know, I don't think public investors are, are, are as good as that as waiting as waiting out all the risks for a company at this stage as like an experienced venture capitalist would. Yeah, the snap is still so early in the monetization strategy and and what they will look like as a money making business if they ever become one is still really hard to make out. Um, you know, I, I chatted with uh, the founder of Indiegogo, Slava Rubin, and Bill Clark from Micro Ventures, a venture capitalist, while I was at South by Southwest, and he said, you know, venture <laughs> venture stage businesses, seven out of ten of them go belly up, and you know, I don't expect Snap to go bankrupt by any means, but that gives you a sense of kind of the uh, the profile for the type of business that Snap is being equated to here, and and the idea that it's it's really hard to picture what it will look like in its full form. And because of that, um, you know, you have the higher risk and the, you know, potential for large gains down the road. Uh, but the downside is certainly there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that part of my skepticism also is like maybe there's this sense that they want to take the pump company public kind of earlier than most other companies might do it because they want to cash out and they want to take advantage of the environment and the hype and in and also maybe maybe. You know, again, I'm being super skeptical here, but maybe like they see, maybe they even internally think user growth is kind of hitting a peak. So they're like, hey, let's let's go ahead and cash out now. There's tons of hype. People want to buy in, and we're kind of hitting this wall. And if you know, we can't really, you know, the hype the hype trade might fade away if you know they don't really do this. You know, I I just think that the maybe part of it is just they wanted to cash out also because if you look at you know how they structured the deal. It's just, it's not very investor friendly. It's not very shareholder friendly from a governance perspective. So, I don't know, maybe that's a small part of it. I don't know. Well, and companies control when they go public for the most part, right? And so, right. you know, if if you're looking at your financials and you're looking at the kind of core business metrics and you're you're seeing that uh, you know sequentially user growth was three percent uh, in the most recent quarter, you might decide it's it's starting to look like a good time to go public. Uh, because your books are about as good as they're going to look before <laughs> right. you start really rolling out the the core monetization strategy, and, and so the hype's, the hype's like all it's all hype right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know you know to kind of go back to that. One of the things that both of us were a little worried about when when we were looking at the IPO um, was user growth, and and you know uh, they are at about 160 million daily active users now. Like I said, up just three percent sequentially from the previous quarter. Um, that was 48% year-over-year growth, though. One of the things that I saw in some of these research notes was some user growth estimates, and I thought it'd be kind of interesting to run through these and uh, see what you thought. So, Cowan estimated that Snap would have roughly 195 million uh, daily actives at the end of 2017, which would be good for 24% year-over-year growth and would basically be like a 5% sequential growth rate for the rest of the year. 
Uh, I actually think that that's fairly reasonable. Yeah, I mean, all these analysts, I mean, all of these estimates, I mean, they're just numbers in the spreadsheet that they're, you know, they, they just plug in these growth estimates. And I mean, I think the, the kind of more important question is like, how do they actually get there? You know, as opposed to just kind of assuming that these numbers on some spreadsheet are, are all fine and dandy. But I mean, I mean, and that's how all models work, of course, because that's what they are. But I think at the full, we kind of tend to be more like, think about it on in terms of business on the ground like how how are they going to do this like how are they going to grow users how are they going to add sales because all these other models are say oh we expect this number of revenue by 2019 2020 whatever it is but i think there's a lot of uncertainty with snap's execution going forward in terms of both ad you know ad revenue trying to grow that as well as trying to get more users on the platform and i don't i don't know it's 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 pretty. I think it's more comp- complicated answer than a lot of these analysts kind of make it seem to be. If that makes sense. Yeah. One of the I bring it up just to to kind of show. Okay. Well, this is what a rosy outlook looks like. And you know, uh, for growth of the platform, that doesn't seem crazy to me. Um, but one of the things that I am a little bit worried about. We haven't talked about this a ton uh, in our past coverage of the company. Is I think international growth, particularly in developing markets, is going to be a lot harder for Snap than it has been for some of the other social media companies, just because it is such a video-intensive platform. Right, and that, that's a good point too, because you know video requires a lot more bandwidth, and a lot of emerging markets don't have a lot of good LTE network bandwidth um, infrastructure on the infrastructure side, uh, and LTE penetration is quite low in some markets. Uh, which is a challenge for the broader smartphone market to kind of grow in those those areas too, but you know for for Snap specifically because they kind of really rely on you know, h- higher speed connections because the the app is so video and photo intensive. Yeah, I mean it's uh, that's another thing that's going to hold them back. One thing that I didn't really see a ton of discussion about in the notes was Snap's status as a camera company, and and then frankly, like that was one of the things that I was most worried about in looking at. The, the prospectus and kind of the general vision for the company because most of these analysts are looking at Snap as if it is a social media platform and it is kind of a traditional online business. And so much of the messaging from Evan Spiegel and management has been, we're, we're, we're a camera company. We're, we're going to be playing in hardware and there's clearly some sort of integration that they see there as being super valuable. Um, to me, that's, that's always been kind of a, a vision and strategy question mark. And I was a little surprised that people didn't touch on that more. I'm kind of glad they didn't. <laughs> because, like we, I mean, we've talked about before, like we think it's a weird way to brand themselves and identify themselves. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I'm kind of glad that the, the analysts aren't really putting too much emphasis on that. Because, you know, that's, as of right now, that's like a tiny, tiny portion of the business. So to, to kind of, you know, focus there like management says to focus there would probably be misplaced. So I think it's actually encouraging that they're they're they are focusing more on the ad side of the business, uh, and you know to to speak more on the ad side. Like for from the Morgan Stanley note, they were talking about how a lot of the upside they see is from ad load. So right now they estimate that right now there are something like 0.6 ads per daily active user per hour, and they expect that to rise to eight. So that's about a 13 times increase over the next year or two. But this, I think, is kind of a catch-22 because you know Snap is huge among millennials, but millennials hate ads. <laughs> so while, of course, in any context, if you increase your ad load, you risk hurting your user experience. You you risk you know your users not liking it. But I think that 
concern is particularly important for millennials who are who might be even more sensitive to an increased ad load that start you know hurting the experience more than like other demographics so i mean again this kind of goes down to like this whole idea of execution on the ad business and I mean, um, let's see, there's another note. The Credit Suisse one said this is a, uh, quote, margin expansion story uh, because they're expecting sales to grow faster than cost of goods sold. But I don't think that really says a whole lot since Snap has a negative gross margin right now. So getting that to positive territory should just be table stakes. Like, you should just expect them to do that. Um, and the uncertainty there is whether or not they can actually execute to grow ad sales. I mean, there's a, there is quite a bit of visibility into what their costs are going to look because... They have these cloud infrastructure spending commitments. So can they grow ad sales faster than that? I mean, that's a huge question, and that's going to really determine in terms of this whole like margin expansion idea if they can actually do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there's just so much uncertainty here, and, and I don't know. I, I don't know how they're going to actually execute on all of these fronts and, and live up to these, these buy ratings. Yeah, and, and reading through the buy ratings, I will say, even as someone that has been a bear for quite some time, um, I can see it. There, there are certain elements of Snap that are, that are very interesting. You know, you talk about increasing the ad load. Um, I, the user growth stuff still terrifies me. But you see the success that Facebook's had um, as an online business, and, and it, it starts to creep into your head, like, oh, maybe I've been a little too pessimistic on this. Um, and then I come back to valuation, and I'm just like, nope, okay, I'm, st- I'm, st- I'm, st- I'm staying away from this for now. But, um, but I am kind of, kind of forcing myself to be a little bit more open-minded with this company and say, you know what, if the valuation drops to something a little bit more reasonable, um, I, I might kind of give it a look. But uh, you know, for me, it's, it's always good to read what people that you know, take the other side of a, of a stock kind of feel, because it, it kind of forces you to balance out your opinion. Um, it hasn't dramatically changed anything for me. I don't know about you. It doesn't sound like it. No, I mean, I'm still pretty skeptical. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, like, another thing to think about is, like, a lot of the spending that's going on on Snapchat, from, you know, my understanding is it's a lot of experimental budgets from advertisers because, you know, they're, they're trying to test the waters because they know Snapchat has this huge base among millennials, which are hard to reach. So they're, you know, they're trying to, to see if they can get return on their advertising dollars there. But now the onus is on Snap to actually deliver results on those ads. And millennials have this practiced apathy towards ads in general, which is why it's so hard to reach them. And if Snap is unable to actually deliver results, those ads, that ad spending is going to dry up pretty quick. And I mean, that being said, it, it's it's important that, that Snap is such a young platform. So it's hard to know. I mean, they could kill it, but they could also totally screw it up. And you just don't know yet at this point. And my, I do think it's a little disconcerting that they're, they're, Evan Spiegel is reportedly really adverse to data decision, uh, data-driven decision-making. Like, he relies on experience more than, than like, feel. Like, if, if you want to pitch him something, you tell how how the users will feel, what they're going to experience. You don't give him numbers, which is weird because advertising businesses are fundamentally all built on data. They're all numbers games. So it's kind of this weird thing, like, why aren't you taking the data more seriously? And, I mean, Facebook itself has had some missteps over the past, like, six months or so regarding their ad metrics, and they're getting a bunch of crap about, like, their metrics aren't good, their data's not good, which is extremely important to advertisers. So, you know, again, it just kind of calls into question the, the the risk and how well they can actually develop this completely new ad business that they've never really done before. So, yeah, I'm, I'm still pretty skeptical overall, I, I would say, despite these buy ratings. 
Yeah, on that note with advertising and execution, I think if you're if you're looking for signals and you use Snap um, and, and their products, one thing to kind of watch for is whether the ads that you see on there drive you to something, and you know whether it's a transaction, whether it's uh, to consume content or something like that, or if it's brand presence stuff, because the ad placements that will drive you to a, you know, there's some sort of call to action that, that gets you to sign up for something or, um, you know, puts you in a situation where you can buy something. Those will always command a premium. You know, there, there's always going to be room in advertising budgets for kind of brand presence and just being in front of consumers. But anything that can actually drive you to a, you know, consumer decision is going to command a much higher value in, in ad budgets. And that's really where I think a lot of spend is going to go. And that's something Facebook has done incredibly well um, in, in kind of showing the ROI to advertisers and, and showing that, you know, we're not just going to have your products up there and people can like them. You know, we're going to be able to get you in a position where people are going to be buying things. So as a consumer, that's a, that's a way to kind of have the finger on the pulse of the success of Snap and their advertising business as they roll it out. Um, Evan, anything else you saw in the notes or uh, anything else going on before I let you go? No, I think that think that'll do it. All right. Well, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out and say hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. You can always tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool will hunt.